Unite Wedding Photographers and welcome to Wedding Photographers Unite episode number 121. I'm one of your hosts, Andy Buscemi, the self-proclaimed professor of photographic pontifications in good company with, oh, I don't have it written down here, uh, the good neighbor <laughs> of good neighbors, Ms. Lindsay Daddario. The good neighbor from the city of good neighbors, uh, Heidi Ho. Hello and welcome <laughs> Um, and also we are joined by a, a one-time previous uh, guest on the show, Mr. Luke Coppin, commercial photographer extraordinaire. He's amazing, um, but be, he'll do a better job of introducing himself than I will him. So uh, Luke, I'll just remind our uh, listeners, it's been, it was, we had you on like a while ago. This is like a I think like year three, or two years, ago, three ago years ago when um, me and Paul and Shauna dropped Project Prescription for Photographers. Yes. Um, so yeah, I'm Luke Copping. I'm a commercial and editorial photographer, also from Buffalo, New York. I'm also one of the co-creators of Project Prescription, which is a set of tools and documents um, for photographers to run their businesses with. Uh, I teach workshops on business and pricing across the country for ASMP. And uh, until recently, I was the national president of ASMP. Yes, that's a that's quite a quite a list there, and the the big one to me is the national president of ASMP. That's a huge huge deal, um, you know that 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 you have have done that, and that you know that we had previously our area within Buffalo previously having Jim Cavanaugh, um, you know the work that you guys do is incredible, um, and thank you for doing what you do. And I know you, you are you still on the board with them, or are you? No, so I've termed out. Um, I was on the board for six years, um, two of which I served as the president of the board. Uh, and now I'm just a civilian, although I have kind of like stuck around for a few months, sort of just as an advisor for the board. Mm -hmm. And, uh, now that I've taken sort of like my year off, I'm going to be getting back involved with the Western New York board again. Cool. Um, well, so that, that said, because we have Luke on, we're probably going to get into some, um, not necessarily, but we'll get into some commercial oriented, um, topics as we go through you know it's a wedding photography podcast but we often do bring up commercial topics because even as wedding photographers we still get those inquiries we still shoot some of those gigs from time to time and being able to handle them in the right ways uh, rather than the wrong ways is a good thing to do um but uh but yeah so we'll do the uh, tr regular roundtable what we've been up to so uh Lindsay, uh how are you doing what where are you in your season right now it's it's december um, are you wrapped up yet? <laughs> you uh, got a well, I'm, I'm, I'm done shooting weddings. Mm. So I have my last wedding of the year, uh, just before Thanksgiving. Um, it was the perfect wedding to end on. It was an older couple, um, with a bunch of kids and their kids were their bridal party. And it was just low key and mature. And it was a beautiful venue on a beautiful day. And it was like, four or five hours like it was the perfect wedding to end the season on cool. um so yeah i uh, i finished up and uh left immediately for florida to visit some family for the holidays and so now i'm just kind of checking back in and starting to wrap up a lot of the editing from the season and um i got a book my first 2021 wedding which is uh, a little frustrating when you're still trying to book 2020 weddings, mm -hmm. but, uh, <laughs> you know, I had one, we're at that point, I think in the year where, 
the inquiries stop coming in with the holidays. People are just kind of busy and doing other stuff. Mm -hmm. And you have that kind of panic moment of like, is my website still working? Is my phone still on? Where'd everybody go? Mm -hmm. (laughs) But uh, yeah, I'm sure it'll pick back up soon. Um, But other than that, yeah, not much going on with me. How about you? Yeah, um, I well, so I had way more than I usually do at this time of year. I had four weddings in November, um, so and I have one more in December, and that's the one that I was I'd mentioned on the show that I was worried about um, with the baby coming because we got the baby coming right. in, in early January, and uh, but I do have I have a Rich Paparaki on call in Rochester. He just um, because it's a Rochester wedding, I wanted a Rochester wedding photographer that you know worked at our level that that and he's uh, was gracious enough to to be on call for it. So thank you, Perfect. Rich. I know Rich listens to the show often, and uh, I really appreciate <laughs> it, man. Thank you so much for doing that because that's a that's a huge deal. And and the couple the couple was at ease when I sent them the email, basically saying like, and this was a few months ago now at this point that I sent that email, but um, they were they were pretty much at ease just knowing that uh, you know if, that that they were taken care of if something happens and and they were totally fine they responded totally fine i was worried about sending that email but they were like you know what that's um that life happens and congratulations and all that so um so awesome. I, was, I was very very fortunate because that's a problem <laughs> you know when people hire us they hire us for us and then when you know that's uh yeah could, could be an issue but they were they're actually great about it so well, and luckily it was a December wedding too, so you had the pick of the litter for backups too. You know, yeah. it's nice when you can send them somebody who you actually really trust and who can you know can do good quality work and represent you well. Right. Yeah, and other than that, I'm just really I'm just really trying to edit because I want to be done editing by by like December 31st, so that hopefully if this baby comes on time, January 6th, I won't have to think about that. And I'm just January, February, March. I'm just kind of kind of be learning how to be dad for the first time you know um, <laughs> that and i've got a couple this other actually that that shoot that you that you assisted me on um i'm, I'm yeah. working through those edits for that which that i would I, I can't wait to show you the shots from that yeah i'm so awesome excited shoot. to see them <laughs> um but uh but yeah so luke what is what does your season look like and, and actually i'm curious and i'm sure there is like this is still downtime for you mostly as a commercial photographer but i wonder if it hits you as hard you see the you see the same cycle basically right like it's a, so weird for me to hear someone refer to it as a season in the commercial world because right. it's <laughs> we have a cyclical thing but i think it's more protracted like it's more seasons within seasons like i'll get very very busy at the end of the year like i'm actually not slowing down right now i'm speeding up mm. because i have clients who are trying to fit projects in before the new year or trying to spend discretionary budget they oh, need to yeah. book they shoots spend that money before and they run that budget, budget for 2019 so <laughs> i have clients um you know booking me for shoots right now for the remainder of this month i have clients booking me into 2020 right now into january and february um, so it's good. I'm still digging myself out of uh, retouching um, hibernation. Mm-hmm. I spent several weeks in September in Vietnam, and I'm still working through a lot of personal work from that trip, in addition to tons of commercial and corporate work and magazine work. So now I have to right say now. something yep. about about this because now, first of all, because you, I remember like you did, do not like planes. Am I am I correct about that? Or you didn't Generally like planes? Not. Generally I not. So I would prefer to drive than fly. <laughs> yeah, but but this is like so. This is like years ago. This is before you were president of ASMP and all that. And then now you're like flying all over the place. You're going to Vietnam. Apparently, you've like really gotten over that plane thing. And it's like or, or <laughs> and you're all over the place. But that is right. 
Well, you put it this way, like it's a 14 hour flight to from Toronto to Taiwan and then another three to Vietnam, you know, <laughs> picture that in a car or a train or a boat. It's going to be a lot longer. <laughs> <laughs> you know, if it's if it's driving to New York City versus flying, I'm probably going to drive. But yeah. once we're talking other continents, I think that rule goes out the window. Right, and right. I've gotten better at flying when I when I first started with ASMP. Um, I was not uh, uh, an experienced flyer, and now I feel like I'm on a plane every other week. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Cool, Luke. I have to say, it's been really fun to see your photos from that trip. It's such a it it is a departure from your portrait work, but it mm-hmm. isn't at the same time. Like I can still see you in those photos, but it's so cool to see work that um, differentiates, you know, from what you're normally putting out there. It's really beautiful. It's yeah. been really exciting for me, too, because my work's been on such a change of direction in the last decade where I came from a background in beauty photography and style and fashion. And I've moved my work a lot more into telling stories about interesting people and entrepreneurs and food. And so this trip to Vietnam was sort of a culmination of a new body of work that I'm starting. And I'm following that up. Um, in January, I'll be going to Cuba for several days um, to shoot. So. I'll have more nice. from that trip, too, to add to this body of sort of travel and documentary portraiture. Yeah, I'm really excited to watch it evolve, man. They're they're awesome photos. Yeah, really, truly amazing. And I've uh, uh, I just have to mention this for listeners. Uh, you absolutely Luke's Luke's uh, website will be in the show notes. You have to check out his work. He's amazing, like is like absolutely incredible. I've always admired your your portrait work since I started uh, doing this years ago. Uh, really incredible stuff. So uh, definitely check out Luke's work. This guy. This guy knows his stuff in and out, through and through, and and it is cool to see the the Vietnam stuff and all that because it is so different from you know the 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 fashion and uh, portrait work you you have you're known for and have done in the past. So yeah, yeah, um, it's been a big change. Like I said, I've tried to distance myself from that older body of work over the last couple of years and move towards um, work that I just feel is more interesting to me and I think more um, more relevant to what's going on in the city I live in right now. Mm. Hmm. cool um well then in that case uh let me do this now so we don't have to do it later uh listeners we have an assortment of hand-picked information that's relevant to you but first just in case you forgot your place in space and time this is wedding photographers unite a wedding photography podcast for wedding photographers bye wedding photographers <laughs> the show goes live roughly other every other week and while we're at it please do leave us a review in apple podcasts subscribe in apple apple podcasts and help us help you by sending questions to info@weddingphotographersunite.com or connect with us on our Facebook group. Just go to Facebook and search for Wedding Photographers Unite. We'd prefer to talk with you rather than at you. So, uh, one thing that that I wanted to do, uh, you know, what? I'm still gonna, I'm gonna, I'll save it for the next that show because I keep saying we had all these international reviews and some of them are like really really funny and I didn't recognize that until later, but. I should have had the page pulled up. If I pull the page up now, that means I'm going to have to look for it. Number one. Number two, that means I'm going to have to edit this podcast later and I don't edit the (laughs) podcast anymore. So so next podcast, I'm going to have that page ready up and ready to go. Um, So so I don't have to touch the and edit this episode. Um, So uh, that's one of our main uh, topics uh, with uh, we were going to talk about is capture one Mm. because that topic came up, I guess, last time with you and Jimmy on the last podcast. Is that right? 
Uh, it sure did. Yeah. And <laughs> yeah, we started talking about workflows and uh, we were talking about Adobe Camera Raw versus Lightroom and yada, yada. And we just briefly mentioned Capture One as something we thought um, was typically used by commercial photographers, people who were tethering a lot, that sort of thing, and just sort of sloughed it off. And there were a few questions last week that Jimmy and I just like kind of didn't really have answers to. <laughs> there, there were actually a few when so. I was listening. I was like, oh, my God, I got <laughs> I got to remember yeah, that so next week. We we definitely were just winging it and we didn't like <laughs> do any um, homework beforehand. We just started reading questions about the Facebook group that we like totally did not have any information. On. Well, that's in fairness, so, that is what we typically do. You know, it's like. but Yeah, but we typically have answers and there were like multiple things that we had nothing for. But it, I hope it was still entertaining. <laughs> it was totally entertaining. I enjoyed it. I actually enjoyed the, the podcast for sure. Um, at any rate, um, one of our listeners, um, and his name was Mike Harding, uh, commented, uh, after we posted the show and mentioned that he was, he had been using capture one for a year or two and listed a whole slew of reasons why he prefers it, um, which really opened my eyes to the, the possibility. And it, it, you know, it wasn't that I didn't think wedding photographers could use it. I just didn't know any who did, I guess. And I hadn't really considered it. Uh, and so I started researching it a little bit and was pretty impressed with what I saw. And I knew uh, our friend Luke here uses it on the regular. So figured uh, Luke's always a wealth of knowledge on all all topics, really. But tech is especially, he seems to know his, his stuff. So I'm um, hoping Luke can shed some light on Capture One. And conveniently, the uh, new newest version just launched in the last couple of days so this is actually great timing for this topic so luke give us give us the scoop what are the give us some pros and cons what are we sure so i'll give you the whole story of how i came to capture one which started with something that lightroom did very poorly because i used to work primarily in lightroom and then about four or five years ago i started taking on um sort of a, a niche in my corporate photography world that was at least in Buffalo was kind of more unique to me, which was like very high volume corporate portraiture. So I would get hired by law firms or large medical groups to come in and create um, portraits of sometimes dozens, in some cases, hundreds of various team members, you know, whether it's lawyers or surgeons or support staff. And so to do this, I would be working with a digital tech who was handling all the tethering stuff while I would be shooting. Um, and they would be working with, you know, the subjects, showing them images, getting approval from the marketing people uh, and so forth. And so Lightroom proved to be super unstable for that. We had constant issues with disconnection. We had a lot of issues with just not being able to tether consistently in a high pressure environment um, where the seconds lost in trying to pull a cord, reconnect, just cumulatively added hours to projects mm -hmm. over the course of several days. Um, that was really not ideal for me. So I had dabbled with Capture One before, but what really initially sold me on Capture One um, was its stability with tethering. And it was also around this time that I was moving towards shooting with medium format cameras. And I shoot primarily um, with Sony cameras now, but I still use my uh, Mamiya on occasion. And uh, I was shooting with like a Leaf Credo back at the time. And so Capture One and Phase One and Leaf and Mamiya are all very married together. 
Um, and so I was shooting tethered into Capture One with my medium format. And over time, I discovered that there was a lot of comfort I got from the workflow in Capture One that I found was lacking in Lightroom. And over the last few years, I found that that gulf has widened as Lightroom has evolved in a specific direction, I feel like Capture One has moved in another. And whereas I feel like they used to be very parallel products, they've now diverged very strongly from each other. And I think that for people who are concerned about workflow, consistency, and control, Capture One's really an ideal solution. Whereas I find Lightroom to be very constrained. I think that in Adobe's effort to start creating products that appeal to a more consumer base, um, they've sort of put you on rails with how you interact with Lightroom. They some degree of customizability. Okay, you can move the panes around and you know change the window a degree, to a degree, but the amount of customization that's available in Capture One for specific workflows is astounding. Um, and no two workflows across genres are going to be the same. I feel like my workflow as a commercial photographer is going to be radically different from that of a wedding photographer um, in terms of just the scale of imagery being shot. Um, but also to the fine-tuned degree that I sometimes need to do stuff. So like if I'm shooting a product, then I need to work within very narrow tolerances to make sure that the color of that product is represented correctly for the client. Um, whereas with more editorial or journalistic work, you may have more leeway about color and work under less constraints. So I think one of the biggest benefits that I get from Capture One is specifically the color engine and how it handles color. I find that it's... Um, I find that color in Lightroom is very linear. You know, it gives you the HSL sliders and that's fine. Um, and Capture One has those as well, but Capture One also has a lot more options for you in terms of color selection, color masking and luma masking, setting color ranges. So like if you want to go in and adjust a color and the oranges slider in Lightroom is not quite picking it up for you. In Capture One, you could go in and just visually widen that arc and say, we want to include some reds and some yellows in here too. <clears throat> and you can just do that in the advanced color picker and then set your fade, set your feathering, and then all your saturation, lightness, hue, values, all of that. Uh, well, on the topic of color, do you find that uh, just on import, is there a difference in the way that Capture One reads color versus Lightroom? Yeah, I think that Capture One interprets um, ICP profiles coming out of cameras in a different way. And it's one of the more interesting things that I'm seeing with Capture One lately is, um, you know, in Photoshop and a lot of other areas, people have moved more towards using lookup tables for color grading. Um, and Lightroom, you know, you have your Lightroom presets and that's fine. They work very well in that environment. But I find that most of the presets that I get the most value from in Capture One are giving me uh, control and customizability about how Capture One is even interpreting the base information from the camera and allowing me to alter that. But I would say that their default color processing is excellent, um, especially how it handles skin tones coming out of my Sony. Um, with Mamiya's, I think there's some peculiarities that might just be peculiar to my camera where I have to make some adjustments, but it's very easy to set up um, consistent import styles where I can do that and make those corrections automatically. Hmm. Um, I've got a question because uh, what is cool is they do have a free trial and I, I knew we were going to be talking about Capture One today and I had tried it years ago. Um, well, a trial at that point, and now that the new one just came out and we were talking about it, I just downloaded the trial and was playing around with it earlier this morning. Um, and I just have a couple questions from a from a wedding photographer standpoint, and I'm just wondering okay. if it's um, where this where some of these questions fall right now. 
Um, I just I noticed on import into Capture One um, that it looked like it was just uh, doing previews, and I didn't really. Uh, and no matter what, it, it looked like Capture One was just going to uh, take and make its own previews. Um, but there is like the option in Lightroom, like where you could just read the embedded previews that normally are that come along with the raw file. Um, it, it, is Capture One able to do that, or is it, it? It seems like it wants to make previews, and I didn't. I looked through the options and preferences, but because it's new to me, I didn't really see anything. Do you have to make those previews on import, or is there a way to? to just I believe you do, but I see it as a benefit because the way Capture One handles previews is really interesting, in that it allows you to create previews at a variety of resolutions. So mm -hmm. you can speed up your workflow. So if you're working on an extremely you know, high resolution monitor, you can set it very high, but if you find that slowing down your system, you can then say, I wanna work with a lower res preview and only refer to my, my primary file when I'm looking at something at 100% to see sharpening or color aberration or banding or anything like that. Um, and then also that's also allowing it to interpolate the color coming out of the camera's ICC profile and run it through that initial raw processor that Lindsay's referring to. Mm. Yeah, because I just because the one thing with from a wedding photography standpoint with Lightroom, I and I know that I people do still use Photo Mechanic and all that that, but I would rather keep everything in one house, so to speak, you know, with Lightroom and uh, and the importing with Lightroom is is nice in the sense that you don't have to build the previews; you can just do the the embedded previews, and it's just pulling the file and it's not making the preview, and it's and it seems to be that that goes pretty quick, and once it's all done then you're just kind of like ready to go in terms of picking. And then, you know, if you want to build one-to-one -one previews after you, if you, you take your 5,000 photos down to 800 yeah. or whatever, you know? Um, so that would be the one thing. I, and I think that, that it would be, if you did as a wedding photographer, it would probably make sense then to you to definitely use photo mechanic before going into capture one. Um, if you're building the previews anyway, right? I would have agreed with you a few years ago because um, I used Photo Mechanic extensively because I found editing in Lightroom to be slow and cumbersome. Um, the new system by which, um, and the tools available for editing in Capture One are so robust that I find like I fly through, you know, several thousand images shot in a day. I can burn through an edit in a night now, especially now that I have a lot of experience in terms of the keystrokes and the analog tools that I use. Like I use a palette tools console um, for my editing. So I can burn through an entire shoot rating stuff in a matter of minutes um, just by selecting groups and then one or two buttons to move grades up and down and star things. Yeah, and I do, I do want to say, um, I, don't, I don't mean to... I was impressed with the speed because while while I did, I imported like a thousand images into Capture mm -hmm. One, and as it was building those previews, you're still able to go through and select. And I was using the down arrow three three. Yeah. three. I was doing my, the normal thing that I would do in Lightroom, and it was seemingly working. And I do you know it's kind of cool that um you know it goes quick enough that it's that it's building that slow preview thing before before it's doing the full thing. It's a slow preview thing. Well, one That's thing a technical term by the way. Yeah. Slow. One thing I would thing. recommend is that um Capture Integration, which is a, a company uh, based in Atlanta, they do a lot of um, training for Capture One and they're, you know, an authorized dealer for phase one cameras and a lot of other products. But they put out some great articles. And one of the articles that they put out that I refer to a lot is optimizing Capture One's performance. And so the issue you might be having, Andy, is that Capture One's default preview size is really big. Mm -hmm. um, and if you tune that down, I find that what I have it set at, I feel like it's almost instantaneous with the previews. At least it's generating them almost as quickly as I can scroll through them. 
Right. And the problem is, is I am like, I'm shooting an A7R3. So those files are huge and I'm importing a thousand. You know what I mean? So I'm I'm on an A7R4 right now. uh, And then I'm also shooting a medium format. So I can certainly sympathize. But after tuning those previews, I feel like it's um, moving very quickly. Yeah. And I did see that there's those, you can import at 800 or 1600 or whatever you want, you know, for Mm -hmm. those previews. And I was using the default. Um, yeah, but. yeah. I think the default on the new version. You know, I just downloaded it. Actually, I'll tell you what it is real fast since I have it open here. Um, the default resolution it's bringing stuff in at is uh, three thousand eight hundred and forty okay. pixels. Yeah, that's, so quite, that's pretty big. Yeah, especially if yeah. you're working on a laptop, that's bigger than your monitor size. So you definitely have some leeway to pull that down a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'm on a Ben. SW monitor, which is actually larger than that. So 380, um, 3840 is smaller than my monitor size. And I find that's pretty quick um, on my system. Uh, but on my laptop, I think I have it tuned to um, somewhere around 1280. Yeah. One other thing I did like about it is I, I hate in Lightroom, I hate in Lightroom that you constantly have to ba- bounce back and forth between library and develop mode. Because I'm yeah. constantly in develop mode, I'm 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 working on something, but then and I'm making these catalogs, right? On that shoot that I'm not in that shoot that you helped me with, Lindsay, and like and I have like a like a their selects in one, and I edit the photo, and then I've got to bounce back over to this library button. I got to hit that shit over there. Do you know what I mean? To come back around and then and then and it's not putting it back in the right folder. And it's like oh my god. But in Capture One, that's not an issue. You're just you could just it's not set up that way with that with those two separate modes uh, or right. whatever you know it's uh, and that's one of the cool things about capture one is the customizability like you said you can have access to all your library tools in one panel all your imaging editing tools in another panel you can pull panels right out of the menu and float them right over the image so you mm. can structure the workflow however you want cool um another another and i'm just asking because i'm curious and i'm i just want to know more about the software just so i have a better mm. idea of it um is there do they have something like smart smart previews or in the sense like if, if you were to or the previews that that is building are you just able to send those previews off if you're if you have an image editor um uh you send them because you know right in, in lightroom if you have like a like an outsourced uh image editing company you can just send them those smart previews files and then they can work off of that um can you do the same thing in capture one is that something similar basically what i do is send them as an eip file which is um a package that capture one outputs that has all the um, adjustments put in there. And I believe that can be reapplied to a preview. It doesn't necessarily have to go with a master. Uh, but usually with my process, I'm color grading all my work myself and then sending it to a retoucher as an EIP file for them to then go in and do all the cosmetic retouching. Mm-hmm. And then um, one one other question, you may not may or may not know this. But one The one thing that I, I've pretty much got everything in the cloud now, like my life is in mm-hmm. the cloud, like all my photos, everything's in the cloud. The one thing that can't be in the cloud is my Lightroom catalog files because if I'm editing on Lightroom and and Google is trying to upload that, it's like, it's so slow. It's like so bad. Mm -hmm. And then it takes forever for it to upload. So I have to keep my Lightroom catalog files local. Um, And I'm wondering if, if you've tried to, if if that even crossed, if that matters to you, if you've, if you've tried to throw the catalog files in the cloud and I've tried using um, Dropbox desktop um, and I've had some, issues with it that I haven't really put the effort into working around yet. Like I tried it one day as an experiment, but didn't dig super deep Mm. on, can I have this um, referencing a specific thing on the cloud and work from two stations? And um, 
in theory, it seemed to work, but in practice, it did seem a little slow and cumbersome. Right. Yeah, that was my issue with the Lightroom thing. It's yeah. probably the same. I, I, don't, yeah. I did find it faster if I was using something, as I said, with Lightroom Desktop, where essentially I was putting something up on the cloud and it was creating mirrored versions um, on each computer that were referencing that cloud one. So it wasn't necessarily pulling something down from the cloud so much as it was syncing across multiple devices. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. As a general rule, do you... Uh, do you find that Capture One is now faster than Lightroom? Like, I know that was a reason a lot of people didn't use Capture One uh, years ago, is that yeah. it just didn't have the speed. I feel like Capture One is very much faster now. Um, I wouldn't know say if it's faster than Lightroom. I think that's going to be really dependent on individual workflow. I would say even just today after installing Capture 120, after using Capture 112 for the past several months, I'm finding that Capture 120 is incredibly faster than Capture 112. Um, I will say that there are things I think Capture One does really quickly and really well. Uh, masking, for sure, I find it to be much faster than Lightroom. Um, Quick question about masking. Yeah. Um, sorry to interrupt. So uh, are there no brush tools in Capture One? You use masks instead? Nope. You can, there is a brush tool. You can create masks with a brush. You can do it by Luma. You can do gradients, both circular and linear. Um, and you can do Luma and color selection masks as well. So you can do a brush on the original image. You don't have to create a mask to use the brush? No, you can create a new layer. And then paint that right over. Oh yeah, there's layers yeah. in Capture One too. Yeah, that, layers. That right. is a layer yeah. workflow. Mm-hmm. So much like Photoshop, like you'll create a layer, a mask for that layer, and then just say, you know, I want to adjust the contrast or the color in this specific area. Hmm. hmm. Um. I'm trying to think. I think I'm a, that might have been the only things that I had in terms of question. It, to me, it seemed like they're. You know, I think both Lightroom had some real serious issues being slow previously, and 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 Capture One as well from from using it in the past. But it seems like they're both pretty evenly snappy, in my opinion. Now, um, as long as with Lightroom, you have to you have to just know how to import the files the right way. That's the problem mm-hmm. with Lightroom. You really yeah. have to know how to import the files the right way in order to get it to to do what you want it to do. I feel like maybe that's less of an issue in Capture One because it just you know, was other than choosing the fi- the image preview size, um, it didn't seem like there was much to much to do that there. Yeah, um, which there shouldn't uh, the, be. Why would there be? <laughs> you yeah, know? I know. The one thing I will say that I, I like the pros that I have over over Lightroom um, that I think are really significant are one the smoothness factor and the control factor. So if I'm doing color adjustments in Lightroom, I find it to a degree very choppy. I feel like the um, units that Lightroom uses, like if you're moving a color slider, um, rather than being a smooth gradient, I find it's almost like stuttered where it's like, okay, you do this and it's very visible, like one point and it's like Mm. a very visible change where I feel like if I can move something in capture one, it's very smooth. And I feel like those points are spread much further apart. And so you have many more shades of gray um, and you know, that you can use on any slider, a much more fine tuned control. Interesting. I, as, we're, you, as we're talking, I'm, I'm playing with capture one as we're talking right now. And I totally agree with you because, uh, yeah. you know, just moving a slider in Lightroom, I'm really, I, I, I'm somebody, I move that over to the, from the right to the left to make that slider mm-hmm. longer in Lightroom. So I have yeah. more control of that and it does seem a little choppy and that kind of thing. But in mm-hmm. capture one, as I'm, as I'm moving like the exposure slider to the left and right, it's very smooth. It's fluid. It seems it's exactly like fluid. what you just said. Yeah. Yeah. And um, then if you're using analog, um, you know, feedback tools like a palette um, tools panel, 
and I'm just turning a dial and it's just moving right there on the screen, moving that slider, like just to the touch. It's amazing. Lindsay, I interrupted you and I'm sorry. No, that's okay. Um, I was going to ask if uh, you felt the dynamic range. I, that's something I read about, like the highlight recovery and shadow recovery is, is much stronger in Capture One. Have you found that? I know when you're shooting your portraits, you're you're getting out of camera like pretty close to what you want, whereas at weddings, we're like in constantly changing scenarios. And so we're probably doing a little bit more work when it comes to that sort of yeah, and I find especially when I'm doing work on location or outdoors or more journalistic stuff, you know, if I have to shoot at a less than ideal time of day and I need to make sure my subject is exposed, I'm probably going to need to do some sky recovery or pull some detail back in reflections or water. Um, I think that the ability for Capture One to control dynamic range is really strong. What I really love about it is that you can actually do multiple layers of dynamic range adjustment. So say I've hit the end of that recovery slider, I can then do a new layer and do a whole new recovery slider on top of it to push it even further oh, if I need to. Cool. Uh, yeah, so there's room there. Um, Sometimes it gets a little absurd and the image starts to break down, like you can really push it. But I would say that it gives you a lot of latitude in what you're doing, especially um, shadow recovery. You can push really far. Highlight recovery, I think you can definitely push further than Lightroom. And I think it's uh, it's also going to depend on the input, like what's coming out of the camera and the camera's, you know, particular dynamic range. Mm -hmm. But um, I would say that the you don't get that broken effect that you do get with Lightroom when you're doing some you highlight recovery work. You don't get that broken-ass Lightroom when you use something yeah. other than Lightroom. So when you're pulling like <laughs> very, your nice when you're pulling back very close to clipped highlights and you get that banding, yeah. that break in, in stark whites, and I'm sure you'll see it on like dresses with like a highlight, you'll recover it and it'll pulse the near highlights out and then the, the highlights themselves will just be broken banded. Um, I find as long as you're not pushing yourself past clipping, um, you have a lot of room in Capture One to pull that back in a much smoother way. And I do feel like it is much more subtle um, in how it applies it so that those recovery gradations are much smoother. Hmm. Yeah, does that... I Another thing about Capture One, I think, is how it handles skin tones. Is that correct? Like when you're recovering... So let's say your your photo's a little blown out and you drop your highlights down, but then your skin looks real muddy. Um, I've read that that's a, a, a nice thing about Capture One is that it doesn't affect the skin tones as much, or how does that work? It will affect the skin tones, but it gives you tools to deal with them really strongly um, right in your color editor uh, alongside like your basic HSLs and then your more, um, your more film editing oriented like color wheels, um, which you can use for color in Capture One. There's a skin tone color correction where you can go in, you can select a base skin tone. And then you can create um, a gradient range that'll select similar tones. And then you can bring those hues closer together, match them, do much more subtle grading changes uh, in lightness and saturation, as well as blending saturation, lightness, and hue for uniformity. So if you've ever experienced like, you know, um, a bride who has makeup on her face, but not on her hands and the hands are very red or a very different color, Capture One gives you tools to unify that very simply. Hmm. Simply paint a mask over the skin sections and set your um, your uniformity of your hue to just bring those together. And it's really nice. I use it a lot in um, headshots uh, to tone down redness. And um, you just have to be careful of a few things like making sure you mask the lips out because it will make your lips the same color as the skin. Um, <laughs> but once you get used to it, I find it to be an incredibly subtle and powerful tool. Hmm. Uh, I'm just for our listeners, I'm looking at, at pricing here. 
um, and uh, four capture one. And one thing uh, that's kind of cool about it is you can actually buy a perpetual license of capture one mm-hmm. if you're interested in doing that. Uh, or you can uh, do the, the subscription model, um, which is nice. They're giving you the option. Why yeah. not give you the option? That seems to make sense to me. Um, and it's, <laughs> How it's, civilized. Yeah, right. Exactly. Um, but uh, and, and so like the Sony version of Capture One, for example, is you can buy a perpetual license for 200 bucks on sale from 336 normally. Or you can do the annual plan for uh, 10 bucks a month. Or you could prepay the annual plan for $100 for the year. Um, so you can kind of go either way with that. And it seems to make sense um, being able to do that. That's that's cool. Yeah. Um, oh, and actually, I take that back. I said $199. That was for these other style packs, if you want these style packs. If you just want Capture One for Sony, uh, where the perpetual license is 130 bucks. So yep. there you go. So even if you only use it for like a little over a year, you get your money back? It's 10 bucks a month, right? Yeah, well, you, yeah, you could do the ten bucks a month, or you could you could buy it outright for one hundred thirty bucks for the for the license. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Why wouldn't you buy it outright? Yeah, it, that seems to make sense. Especially because um, there's a free trial, so it's yeah. there's no risk if you like it. Right. The only downside to that is, I'd say, Capture One is very very good about doing significant um, updates on a regular basis, mm-hmm. uh, and so one of the nice things about how quickly they deliver new iterations of the software and the improvements. Uh, both under the hood and in terms of features, um, it, it evolves very quickly. It's changed significantly since I started using it, and I feel that it continues to evolve um, rapidly as more people are adopting it. Hmm. Well, um, speaking of new or new, <laughs> uh, new new image editing software, at least to me, uh, Luminar Four uh, recently came out, which I had never really heard of. And the only reason I heard of it is because it was kind of making the rounds on some uh, photo uh, sites just because of the sky replacement technology uh, that's in there. And uh, I have to say, now, I, now, the reason that I actually downloaded this thing is because, number one, I just wanted to see what it was and what it looked like and how, how good it actually did what it said it was going to do. But number two, I actually needed to use it because I had a client that, like a musician, and we went out and we did the shoot and it was supposed to be stormy, but it really wasn't stormy. It was just a clear sky. And I definitely needed to like add this stormy sky into this shot uh, for this artist. So, um, so I downloaded it and I used it in my workflow today and it's amazing. Like, it's like, holy, holy shit. Amazing. Like, it's really, really good. Like as far as like being able to detect where your subject is, and then there's like, it, I think when you download it, you can try it for free. There's probably like 20 different skies that you can pick from, right? Um, but you just pick the sky and then it, and then you dramatic sky one, dramatic sky two, whatever. And I, <laughs> and, I, and I was expecting it to do like a terrible job. I was like, I, I might as well just go in Photoshop. I'll just do it myself. It's not that hard anyway, right? But like, it, it's like, it saves so much time. It's unbelievable. And this is even you can even get skies like you can shoot your own sky right and you can take that sky and it will you can import that sky and do the algorithms of of determining where the subject is and and i had a best case scenario where i had a very clean subject against a very clean sky in the background so that that could be why it worked so well but at least in my case it was like it was really really impressive like i was like blown away and you can you can adjust like how the the 
original sky melds into the horizon line you know there's some different sliders there and some different options for you to play with um but i i say like it did really really unbelievably good without even adjusting any of those sliders to begin with i was i was blown away so the so the cost of admission on that thing for the for the few times that you might need to replace a sky we can get into the ethics of that and all that kind of thing too. But, but for the times that you do want to do that, um, if you're shooting your own sky and replacing your own sky with your own work, right? Um, like it's, uh, it's, uh, it was impressive just as, just for that alone. And the rest of it seemed like kind of like a hacky version of Photoshop, you know, that, that, that kind of like, yeah, did you, that worked. did you play with the other yeah, tools? Yeah, it worked. You know what I mean? Like I went through the tools and it was like, that's cool. That's cool. It was, it wasn't like, I'd rather be in Photoshop, but but you could see why, you know, you could do 90% of what you'd want to do in, in that software. And it, it was pretty intuitive in terms of ease of use and everything like that. So mm-hmm. um, that was well, my... Well, for, for our user, Dan Strant, who asked about Luminar 4 last week, and Jimmy and I didn't know anything about it. There you go. You're welcome. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Andy. <laughs> no problem. That was, that's, my, that's my report on Luminar 4 for what it was worth. And I think that it was like... 60 bucks or something <laughs> like that for the software i don't remember i should i should you me... should post a uh before and after in the group for us yeah It'd be ma- cool to see yeah maybe actually i absolutely will um i absolutely will uh and i think um i th- i don't know if i ended up using one of my own skies or if i used one of the ones that was in the software i might have used one of the ones that's in the software um but let me actually let me just look up the pricing really quick um Oh, and it's not gonna it's not gonna pull right up. I'm come on. Not editing this out. I'm not editing any of it. Uh, <laughs> uh so it looks like uh yeah, you can get it it's like eight seventy eighty bucks. There you go. Eighty bucks you can get Luminar for. And two bonuses for whatever that's worth. I don't know what the bonuses are. Um okay. Um and then also the only the other thing I just wanted to report on is that MacBook Pros do not suck anymore. Um, I did end up uh, once once they made the announcement, and this is again came up on the podcast with you and Jimmy last time, <laughs> and, and neither of you knew what time, was man. going Thank on, you. other than there was a new one maybe or whatever. Um, but yeah, so the the new one uh, that was just uh, released a few weeks ago, finally they like fixed. I would say really kind of everything. <laughs> Um, there is one one thing that that I thought that I cared about. Well, let me get into it just really quickly. Uh, the keyboard issues are completely gone. The keyboard works amazing. Again, it's just like the 2015 MacBook Pros and the ones before. It's a lot faster. They fixed the heating issues because there was problems with with the the 2018, 2017 MacBooks where they were they were so small because Johnny Ives and his and his designer self wanted wanted it to look amazing but like the thermal outputs were like really terrible so the those are the processors were thrown in so you're buying these i9 processing computers which is the reason to upgrade and you're not even getting getting what you're paying for because the because it was all about the design of it so they they made it a little bit bigger uh to fix that issue the keyboard is amazing again there's an actual escape key um so that that's not on that touch bar because every because the escape button was on the touch bar before and that was a real problem and then uh, it's just a 16 inch in the same form factor body, so it's uh, so the screen's a little bit bigger, a little bit nicer. Um, and then the ol- the other thing about it is um, is these uh, the the ports was the other issue, and that's the thing that the one thing that I think 
that I was concerned about is because I really liked having that SD card slot on the on the MacBook, um, and they've taken away all the ports, right? And they still have. Mm-hmm. Um, but it turns out that USB C is really kind of where it's at. Like, um, I have like one adapter for the the only thing that I need an adapter for is importing SD cards. Everything else, um, you really don't. It, I have as many things coming in and out because your power is supplied by the USB C. Um, other than you know the USB drives, eventually those are going to be USB C um, because that's where everything's going. So um, that doesn't really annoy me as much as I thought it would um, at all, uh, really. So I'm I'm happy with it. It's not like it's it's the the main improve the main reason for upgrading for me is just like it's a it's a it's a faster computer than than what I was using than than, than what was hap- what was out there four or five years ago. And if that can save me time, after, you know. Um, even if it's a 20%, 30% boost in performance, that's, you know, 20% of my life back to some extent. You know what I mean? When I'm importing and exporting and, and doing all this stuff on here and it's time and time is money. And, and every, you know, few years, I think it's worth doing that upgrade. So, so that's my report on the, on the newer MacBooks. They don't suck anymore. They're, they're back to where they used to be. Do the new them. ones have a display port for external monitors or is that done through the USB-C? Everything is USB C. So so even these these USB C's are actually Thunderbolt Thunderbolt ports as well. Mm. And mini display ports as well. So okay. so it just the form factor, everything is the form factor of USB C, but they're outputting Thunderbolt three through every one of those. That you can outboard mini mini display port throughout every one of those. It's just that's the form factor for everything. So Yeah. That's that. Um <laughs> I guess uh, the other the other thing we wanted to mention in terms of uh, topics, maybe we want to do. We want to take a listener question first to just kind of vary up the, sure. the uh, yeah the show here. Do it. Why don't we do that, Lindsay? What do we got? Do you know what we got, or do I got to look this up? Yes. Yeah, so I uh, we got one over on the Instagrams. All right. Yeah, I uh, I asked in our our Instagram stories if anyone had any questions for tonight, and we got one. So, hey, how about that? Uh, so, Nelson Tapias. Tapias? Tapias. Not sure. Uh, he asks, winter wedding tips. I'm second shooting my first wedding late, winter wedding later this month. Winter wedding? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, I've got a tip for that. Uh, my tip for winter weddings is look and see what time the sun sets. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and tell your couple, hey, just so you know, the sun sets here at this particular time, whatever that time is. Um, just number one, so they know and don't expect that they're going to get these bright, airy looking wedding photos on their wedding day <laughs> if the sun sets at four o'clock and they don't do photos until 530. That's not the look they're going to get. OK. <laughs> and then so that's the first thing. Tell your remind remind your clients of when the sun sets. That's number one. Number two is then be prepared to light and shoot uh, evening portraits. Um, and that's fine. It, you know, that's totally fine. Like, I, I've shot winter weddings before, and all their portraits are at night. Just be ready to, to, to shoot them at night. Have, um, have your off-camera flash ready to go, or be ready with LED lighting or whatever it is that you do. If you have a second shooter, have them ready to go. And just, you know, be ready for it. Um, but other than that, uh, those are my main, my main thoughts off the bat. What about you, Lindsay? I think the best part about a winter wedding is that it's golden hour, like all day. So, (laughs) you know, the sun is always low in the sky. You don't have that terrible light you get in the middle of the summer. So 
you're a lot less restricted with, um, you know, your shadows and all of that stuff, which is a nice perk. Um, the other thing is, and I talked about this a little bit last week, you know, it's, it's cold out in the winter. So, <laughs> um, you know, you've got to have people who are, who are good spirited and if not make a game plan ahead of time so that you're prepared if people are just really not feeling the cold so that, you know, exactly where you're walking, you know, you don't want to be just wandering around some park, like mm, maybe over here would be good. No, I'm not sure. Let's go back over here. Mm-hmm. You know, you really want to have everything laid out so that you can just, bam, 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 just get everything done really quick and get people back into the warm room. And some some groups are fine with being out in the cold, and it's great. Um, others, not so much. Uh, the other good thing about it is that you can just have everybody snuggle up together because they're so cold, and it makes for cute photos, you know, just have everybody huddle up together and body heat, and it, it gives some nice chemistry to the group that you might not ordinarily get. Mm-hmm. Cool. Luke, do you have, uh, uh, do you have any winter wedding <laughs> photography tips for wedding photographers listening to this podcast i guess my biggest tip would don't be do winter weddings uh no <laughs> spoken I mean, like a do, true commercial photographer we, we do a lot of outdoor winter stuff um all year round whether we're shooting portraits of animals or um, portraits of people I, I i would say the comfort of your subject is paramount um mm. and the more that you can address the discomfort that you know they're going to have up front, the better. And you can actually turn that into something that's saleable and how you market yourself and how you onboard clients. So, you know, if you can write off the bad address, you know, you're having a winter wedding, don't worry. We're going to, when we do the ports outside, we're going to bring chemical hand warmers and hot hands for you to keep, you know, if you need to put it in your dress or whatever, or in your suit pocket to keep your hands warm, we're going to have that available for you. If I have a second shooter with me, second shooter is going to have, you know, something there, you know, your coats put aside warm in the car, whatever, right off the bat and start solving problems for your clients before they even know they have them. Yep. And as far as shooting, um, glove liners are great for shooting so that you, you have like uh, one layer of glove that you can shoot in and then a mitten you can throw on on top when you're just posing or, or walking between sites. Cause holding a freezing cold metal camera in the middle of the winter is not great for your fingertips. So I love framers gloves. They have only, um, two fingers exposed or three fingers sometimes. Yeah. Right. Uh, they're usually really well insulated. And then like, I cannot um, underestimate the importance of uh, like hot hands and hand warmers, throw them in your pockets. They're also great for your battery like life. If you have batteries that you're outdoors with and the ones getting low, cold temperatures are going to drain your batteries super fast. Throw one in your pocket, make sure it's warmed up before it goes in your camera. You'll get a little extra life out of it in the outdoors. Yeah. Not they only actually the... have, go ahead. Sorry. Go ahead. They have gloves for um, like hunting where you have a, an exposed trigger finger, <laughs> yep. different kind of trigger finger. But yeah, that's the idea. It's just, you know, it's like a mitten, but the one finger, so you can still use it to shoot your, uh, your photos. <laughs> it's free. It's also great if you need to use your phone uh, with gloves on. Sure. Yep. Yeah. Um, I'm going to bring this topic up <laughs> and just because I don't, maybe, maybe I'm dumb and, and I need to, and I need to realize why this is a terrible idea. Um, this Venmo thing, Tell me the legal reasons why I can't or I'm not supposed to pay a second shooter, a, a subcontractor, a 1099 person through Venmo. Tell me why. I can give that I can give that second shooter I can give that second shooter cash, right? If I wanted to, I could pay him with cash. Sure. Okay. Can I pay that second shooter with 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 Venmo if he's a 1099? No. Why not? 
It's against the terms of service. Is it? <laughs> yes. Does it say that in there? Yes. Lindsay told me not to bring this topic up on the podcast because <laughs> I just look like a fool. And she's probably <laughs> right. But but does it it says uh, why why do they care? Do they really care? Does Venmo I, care? I don't know. Like you might do it forever and never be caught. But like if you're gonna do it, like at least be sneaky about it, you know? Like <laughs> So don't so don't make it public and put camera uh don't faces say, all like, over it. Wedding uh, photography skills. Like, don't write that. Yeah. <laughs> write like new couch. Yeah, but does so like okay? Yeah. So maybe maybe Venmo cares, but does the government care? Like, does the government have a reason to care? Like, like as long as it's be being reported. Like, do you know what I mean? Like, nobody's like like I'm reporting that I'm paying my second shooter through my business. You know, to the to taxes, right? And so is the second shooter is reporting he's got the income in the same yeah. way that cash transaction yeah. would it, happen. Well, so does the government really ideally, care as long as it's being reporting. reported? Yeah. So they um they have a a business version of it, and you know it costs money. Yeah, so so that, like just so, like PayPal, you can send money to friends over PayPal for free, but if you're using it for business, it's like you know whatever the three percent charge. Right. It's the same thing for Venmo. So so Venmo Venmo it's because they want to make money. Is that the reason? And yes. the government doesn't really care though. The government doesn't care. Just Venmo, right? <laughs> I have no idea. Yeah, see, I want to know this, though. So listeners, uh, um, tell me. But the thing is, you if they figure out that you're doing that, I assume that there's some kind of fine that they would issue. And then if you didn't pay it, then you would be in legal trouble, which I guess would involve the government. Does, right. that, does that work? Yeah, that's, I guess so. But I think like <laughs> I think like 90% of people are paying people like this. This is what this is what all transactions on Venmo really is, is like. Somebody, no, somebody, cut somebody's, hair, somebody cut somebody's hair. Somebody cut somebody's hair. Yeah, but same thing for rent. Same thing. It's the same business transaction, you know? No, 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 no. Not your landlord. If you're sharing a, a apartment with your friend and you're splitting the rent, well, that's that what could it's be built for. You're that splitting your dinner bill. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. I'm just saying, be sneaky about it. Because I, like, if I'm paying my, I'm doing my, my fair share and I'm paying my 3%. <laughs> And then I see all these other people who are cheating the system on Venmo. It makes me a little mad. <laughs> I'm a little salty. Yeah, but you could pay them with cash. But also, like, I worry if you, you know, if you did get <laughs> caught, then you might have to deal with a bunch of bullshit fines. And that would suck. Mm. Mm. Just looking out for you, buddy. Okay. All right. Well, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm curious to know the, the, the legal reasons. If somebody, if a listener... Uh, is hearing this and can point me in the right direction I, of what document. I imagine to read. there's some kind of liability on their end. Yeah. You know, like if there's business transactions happening there, then you know if a business deal goes awry, they don't have like proceedings for contesting that sort of stuff. Right, the right, way, right. I I don't know. Yeah. I'm sure there's a reason. I'm, I'm sure they didn't just make I'm it sure up. I'm sure there but... is too. I'm sure there's too. <laughs> I'm just I'm just playing devil's advocate about the whole thing because I because I don't know. Because you right. like them. Yeah, I'll do. <laughs> All right. Um, uh, I guess maybe uh, one of our uh, one of our last topics here, uh, because we got Luke on, um, we're going to talk a little licensing. What what this is this is the topic that wedding photographers know almost nothing about and need to know something <laughs> about. Um, and so, it's come up a lot lately on our show too, where people have just had these situations where venues are using their photos on billboards and all kinds of crazy stuff, and yeah. wedding photographers are just letting it go, or they don't know what to do. And 
it's the never-ending topic that that wedding photographers never take the time to learn and then and then <laughs> constantly comes up so luke as as the past president of american society of media photographers educating uh educating us us wedding photographers that uh that have these constant issues that comes up come up what's our you know whatever level of detail that you want to get in whatever scope you want to bring it in bring it on sure. home sure Help us out. Where so do we start? <laughs> I would say that the first place to start is not being afraid to ask questions, um, both of your client and of people who are more experienced in those fields of licensing. Um, you guys know that at least in our Western New York community, there's an open door for wedding photographers to come to most of the commercial photographers in town for advice mm-hmm. in regards to licensing. Uh, and if not licensing um, in a more direct sense, but a strategy for how to develop your own workflow for licensing. Um, it starts with information though, developing a license, developing a pricing strategy for a commercial job is going to be dependent on how much information you can gather from the client. Uh, I can't tell you the number of times I've had wedding photographers reach out to me and the email is as simple as I have a client who wants me to shoot something. What should I charge? Um, (laughs) which is really broad and a very hard question to answer. And I think in um, you know, any of the, the groups that we've been a part of, whether it's the Western New York Photo Chat or the ASMP Western New York group, when those questions come up, there's inevitably a series of questions that follow from, you know, me or Aaron or Jim, such as how many images do they need produced? What is the length of the license they're looking for? Do they want to use these images for one year or five years or in perpetuity? What media is it going to be in? Is it going to be print only? Is it going to be web? Is it going to be advertising? Is it going to be um, for PR use, for editorial use, for corporate marketing use? Um, All of these are permutations and parameters that you have to calculate when figuring out a price. how difficult is the shot to execute? Is it be, are you being hired because you have a unique style and ability to deliver it? Or are they looking for a photographer um, who can provide the cheapest price? At which point their perception of your value has shifted radically. And then you have questions um, internally that you have to deal with is, do you want to work with a client who perceives you that way as a commodity versus someone who perceives you as a creative partner and peer uh, who's interested in your unique view on things, your personality and your approach to the work? Um, I would say that in general, the biggest assumptions I see wedding photographers make, uh, that are flawed in their logic of pricing are, are maybe four or five. The first is that commercial photography isn't a business to consumer business model. Like wedding photography is you're not selling to an individual with a concept of what a fair price is for an individual. So if you're looking at your price when you're setting up for a commercial job and think to yourself, this seems like something I could afford, this seems fair, you're not charging enough. Um, Simply because corporate clients, where you're in a B2B um, system like that, corporate entities think of pricing very differently. They're not just looking at like, what can I afford? They're looking at all these other intangibles, such as how reliable is this person? Are they gonna deliver the work that we need? What's the ROI on this? And because of that, prevailing rates in commercial work tend to be higher, um, you know, on a per image basis. I might regularly provide one or two images for a commercial client for essentially like the same uh, gross cost as a wedding. Um, and so when you look at the per image value, the perception is really, really different than what you will find in like family portraits or um, in weddings with a business to consumer type relationship. Um, the second one is thinking that because you're a wedding photographer, you have less value somehow. 
in most cases, if a client's interested in working with you and they're interested in licensing your work, they're doing it because they're already a fan or they like what you've done. Um, and that puts you on even footing with other artists. I think that a lot of us need to drop this perception of thinking of photography as a better or worse situation. And it's more one of difference. You can be all over the map with different styles and different outputs and different aesthetics. One might be better suited for a particular situation, but it really is more a matter of what's right for that situation, not who's a better or worse photographer. Hmm. Uh, uh, you guys hear me? Okay. Yep. Okay. Yep. Uh, the, I just was getting some weird feedback or something. Um, yeah, so I want to play a little bit of uh, Devil's Advocate, or at least in terms of... Um, when how knowing that things are changing a little bit and the the landscape is changing a little bit in terms of licensing and in terms of you know people are i've heard many commercial photographers say that that you know the the year to year pricing it's it's it we're doing more um a long term uh mm -hmm. uh what what is the term that i'm looking for for that um in use and perpetuity per perpetuity um, yeah. the licensing has, has become more of that because more, more, and business clients are kind of expecting, uh, to, to, mm -hmm. to do that. And, and it is easier on both the photographer and on the client to not have to keep track of, you know, well, I can use this image for one year and then this photographer, I can use this image for two years and then to keep the system. And who is it that's actually keeping, gets keeping tabs on that. And, and all these, these issues kind of come up. Um, I think, um, the, the devil's advocate part that I want to play is when I'm pricing out a commercial job and I've, you know, and I know I, I've been around and I kind of know I get the, the general idea of, of the whole thing. But my, my first thing is, is I know my cost of doing business. Right. And I know that, um, and that's, that's a whole other conversation. We've had that conversation on the show, so we don't really need to get into that, but I know my cost of doing business on like what, what amount of money I should be making per day, you know, in order for it to be worth my time. And when I look at a commercial job, like for like lawyer headshots, for example, um, I know that like, well, my time is worth this if I'm, if I'm, if I have like a day rate or whatever that is, and then I'm going to spend a day editing, for example. So I'll charge my day rate times two. And, and then with the licensing, to be honest, the only, cause I can, I can budget out and estimate my commercial shoots pretty easily just based off of that because I know how much time is involved and I know what my time is worth. But when it comes to the licensing, to be honest, when we're, when we're dealing with uh, local clients, um, when we're dealing with, with small businesses, the licensing that I'm coming up with, I'm just, I, I want to charge something so that they recognize that there's a value to that, to that license. So it might be, it literally sometimes on my invoices or estimates for local clients might be 20 bucks. And I'm just pulling that number out of a hat. I'm I'm saying for like and I'm and Luke's Luke's uh, eyes just uh, crossed there for a second. <laughs> but, but what I'm saying is is I'm when I'm talking about like a mom and pop shop that has five hundred dollars for a shoot or six hundred dollars for a shoot or something like that. Um, if and if they want me to come in for like an hour, um, you know, I'm I'm gonna put something on there. I'm gonna price out what my time is worth. Um, you know, in order to do that. Um, but on that the licensing, I'm gonna I'm gonna it's it's going to be a low fee. It it just is for for a very small like it's a, like if it's a hairdresser for example, whatever, you know. 
Mm-hmm. Um, but obviously, the bigger the scale goes up, and the, the higher the the commercial client, then you're gonna you're gonna charge more per image. Um, but my first priority, even for those gigs, is what is my time worth? And then at the end of the day, on all these licensing, these on the usage, the licensing, the numbers that we're coming up with, we're essentially how is it are we pulling them how much is it are we pulling them out of hat versus are we based on scientific evidence of this is how much this particular image is worth because no matter what we're pulling that number out of a hat right or where do we yeah where do we andy get that like from all those things you mentioned luke like you know how long are they going to use it and mm-hmm. you know how um unique is your image like i understand all of that weighs into the value of your photo but like where does the number come from <laughs> sure so let me start with addressing um, everything Andy just said and why it's wrong. <laughs> no, um, I mean, the key thing, and like you just said, your thing is making sure that you know what your time is worth. Yes. I will say that in the commercial photography world, that's a flawed way of even looking at your worth. Photographers aren't laborers. Um, we do creative work. We do knowledge work. And so our knowledge and our experience has worth. Basing your billing strictly based on time is a surefire recipe for you to make less money because as you get more skilled at your job and you can complete shoots and editing faster, you're making less money on a job when in essence that increase of speed is providing more value for a client. You can provide good work faster. That should be an increase of value, not a decrease for one. Second of all, like I said, your ignoring the experience, the education, the ability to create consistent workflows and processes, all of these bring value as well. Time really look at with a commercial license. Um, And so I'll say that if you're shooting on a day rate or you're shooting on an hourly rate, I would highly advise you to consider working on a per project basis or a um, per shot basis where you're billing per each shot delivered. I think that one, it's um, healthier for the client vendor relationship. Uh, The client isn't concerned that you're taking too long on a shot to pad your bill out. And you're also not feeling rushed by a client that you have to do the work faster to stay within a certain price range that they've set. I think if you set a cost for a project and work within that, it gives you the freedom to then say, this project is going to take as long as it takes for me to do this right to demonstrate my expertise and skill to you. Right. But let me say that I, I know what you're saying, but I, would you consider um, that I'm working on a per project basis because I feel like I am like I'm getting now one of the things that a very important thing that I think you said that a lot of people don't get is that on these kinds of projects, you need to get as much information up front. Like you, you like, like you, you need to get a ton of information up front. Like before I put out an estimate, I want to know exactly how many shots they want delivered. I want to know what they're, I even put like on the, on the um, project or whatever I put like, you know, it's going to be framed horizontally. It's going to be, it's, it's very specific on like what I'm going to be delivering. Um, so you need to get a ton of information before you put out an estimate. And, yeah. I, and I always do that. Um, but, and, and then in that sense, I'm, once I know that I know that, well, if I'm going to do a good job on this project, it's going to take me a half a day to shoot this. It's going to take me a half a day to shoot that. It'll take me a full day to shoot that. And then I'm going to, and then I'm going to price that out. Like it's going to be like, well, this because, and I'm not going to work at a faster pace 
than I feel like I'm able to produce quality work mm-hmm. at, you know? So, so I'm, but I'm still considering that to be like, well, that's a half day shoot here and that's a full day shoot here. And I'm, you know, I'll, I'll bill in for an assistant if, when it comes to it and that kind of thing. But, um, but when, but isn't that on a per project basis or is it, but it's still on a day rate. It's kind of both. I mean, what, well, no, because you're not really basing that on something quantitative. You're saying an arbitrary time. It's going to take me a half day to execute this shot. To execute so the shots, first thing is that clients will throw curveballs your way. Um, this is why I always have a binder full of job change forms. When your half day shoot that they expect you to come in and do two lit portraits turns into two lit portraits plus a bunch of shots of plated dishes at a restaurant plus a bunch of shots of architectural stuff. And these weren't necessarily super complicated things that added a lot of time to the shoot, but your mass of deliverables has increased. So if you want to maximize your income for that, if you're charging on a per shoot basis for the same amount of time, you know how to scale away to the say of the client. But I'm not. We went from, we went from two shots to eight shots. Right. I agree with so you. So it doubled the time, but it quadrupled the amount of deliverables. Right. But so so what I'm saying is if that happens, I'm saying my overall project scope says 10 shots delivered. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like it says that right in there. So if they all of a sudden say, hey, we want 15, I am going to charge more for that. And and I am putting on the estimate, you know, like per each each mm. delivered image, you know, the editing fee is this. And then the yep. usage fee is this. But my usage... Is you is probably quite a bit lower than than it probably should be because I don't know how to look up what that number is and and I'm more concerned with what my time is worth you know what yeah. I mean in terms of editing and shooting than what that magic number is that I have no idea how to look that that magic number up you, you know what I mean it like and 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 obviously if it was like if I was working for Nike or something like that I would approach you I would approach other people in our area to get the actual number and then look it up on Getty Images and all that stuff even though Getty Images is worth nothing anymore right with with the changes or whatever that have happened can you even use Getty Images to look up like a usage thing anymore yeah but i would say that that's the lowest end of the market and even in that regard you're not addressing the fact that getty images are accessible to everyone on the royalty free scale so what they charge for an image doesn't carry the weight of the fact that you're creating custom work for a client you're a commissioned agent and so that intrinsically has more value than something one of their competitors can use and as for the idea of this number that you can go and look up there are sources um, that you can go to for prevailing information. I mean, the Wonderful Machine publishes a great uh, semi-monthly series on pricing different kinds of jobs. The ASMP paperwork share is there. There's um, software out there like PhotoQuote, which can help you develop yeah. um, uh, pricing structures. More importantly, I think that photographers have an allergy to talking about price that we really need to get over. Um, this idea that everyone out there is competition And I think what it's resulted in is people having this mindset that they have to compete on price rather than compete on value, uh, which is a huge deal. Um, It may not seem so right off the bat, but there's a huge difference between price and value. And if people are concerned about competing on price, it's a race to the bottom. Eventually, we'll all cannibalize what remains of this business, and no one will be working as a professional photographer anymore. Uh, If we start associating our Pricing based on our value, though, what we bring to clients. One, it's easier to sell a client on a higher rate because you're communicating the value you're bringing to the job, not just the cost to them. You always want to be communicating in terms of value and not cost. Um, But more to the point, it gives you more of a sense of where you can go with your work and grow. Um, 
if we talked about price more and pricing methodologies more, I think people would be less um, reticent and ashamed to ask for help, which I know you've been over the years, Andy, have come to me and we've talked about pricing many times. And, mm-hmm. but we also know that there are students out there. There are emerging photographers who have had negative experiences, um, perhaps with other commercial photographers or with communities that they work in and they work in isolation. They work with a limited information set. And one of the things that I love about Buffalo is that we've got an incredibly strong photographic community here that's really open and accessible, but there are other cities out there that don't have that. And so I would say, don't be afraid to ask for help. Even if you have to ask someone outside of your city, you know, reach out to people like Andy or Lindsay who can refer you to people who might be able to help you in your area or even outside of that area so that you can get that information. Most photographers want other photographers to succeed um, with very few exceptions, I would say we don't view this as a zero-sum game where we want to put other photographers out of business because we view them as taking our market share. We want to pull other people up where we are and help them so that they can have careers and support their families and have a sustainable way to make art be a living um, yeah, yeah. in this world. 100%. Um, yeah. And always well-spoken as you always are on this. I've, I've, <laughs> I need to be uh, clear that just because I was playing devil's advocate there um, – I've learned a ton, a ton from you and our commercial photography group over the years that I do feel very confident in when I'm putting together an estimate and pricing it out and knowing what my cost of doing business is and, and all that. Um, but I guess I still want to ask the, the one question. Here's my direct question that I want to ask because I still want, I want <laughs> as best of an answer as I can get out of it. For a new photographer or even somebody like me who's been shooting nine years at this point, and when we get these estimates come in, the the only thing that the only thing that I still struggle with when I'm putting together an estimate for commercial work is where this number comes from for a usage fee for an image. That is the one thing right. that that I have the hardest time, and I feel like I'm pulling it out of a hat and I'm just tacking it on to like to what I think feel like my time is worth to do the job. So like, where do where does anybody start? Like, as far as like okay. looking to see. Where do we find like what is a what is the 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 value of an image or what should it be and 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 but then you know in my head I you know I come back to around to what I was saying before but but where do we start yeah. with that? So there's a couple things with this. One, it's not just the value of the image, and we'll 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 talk about how we develop the price. I'll get to that, but it's also the value of the experience. It's the process, the workflow. We're more than just our images. We get hired because we can deliver something unique. Um, you know, I think it's really true in the wedding photography world. It's not just about the quality of the images. It's about the experience and the care that you show clients and how you take care of them afterwards. 100%. So that process has an immense amount of value too, beyond just the image. And if you have a reputation for being someone that has amazing customer service and an amazing experience, that's something you can add to your price. That said, um, I think that you are halfway there, Andy. When you start thinking about your time and your value, that's the first element of pricing. Um, I generally break my pricing down into three areas. So I'm looking at my fee, which is going to be based on my time, my experience, the difficulty of the shot, my education, the process I bring, everything I just mentioned. We have the license, um, which is the value of the image to the client. And then we have production costs. Production costs are super straightforward. That's the cost of my second shooter plus yeah. markup. That's the cost of a set or an insurance certificate for a venue that you charge for. Yeah. All of those little things that you need to pay to make a shoot happen. Yeah. And so you have a little markup on that. It's administrative costs. Your fee, 
I think you have a great basis for what you're saying. You understand what you need to make in a day. That's your cost of doing business. And, you know, to remind everyone, the cost of doing business analysis is what you need to charge to break even, not to have a profit. And so you have to charge more than that CODB to generate profit. Yep. Um, and so on top of that, that profit, it can be the licensing factor. And how I present licensing, I don't necessarily break licensing out separate from my fee. Uh, very often for ease of communication, because I do deal with a lot of non-sophisticated or image-savvy clients, mom-and-pop stores, small brands, record labels, like you said, I'll combine the fee and the licensing into one line item. Um, but that doesn't mean that there's not a consideration. I What I like to do is start from a baseline, and I like to set rules for myself. I'm very process-oriented, and this is an easy way for people to start. If nothing else, even if the market proves your pricing model to be wrong, be consistent about how you do it. Be able to create permutations of it. So if you say, my fee for a day of shooting is going to be X, and then I'm going to start with a per-image licensing fee of X, then you set up a spreadsheet and say, here's X, and here it is with modifiers. So let's say, is the client national? regional or local. You can set three parameters, class one, class two, class three. And each one of those classes multiplies that initial base price by a certain amount. So, okay, if it's a local client, it's that rate. It doesn't change it. But if it's national client, we multiply it times two. If it's a global client or like a multinational client, we multiply it times five. At least if nothing else, you're being consistent with your process. Mm -hmm. um, same thing with media. Is it all media? Is it limited media? Is it PR only? Is it you know, um, collateral only, great. You can then have a modifying factor in that. You can do this in a very data-oriented way. The number you start with, what you plug in, that's ultimately going to be up to your research and your market because it's going to vary by city. It's going to vary by region. It's going to vary by specialty of photography. But that can be had by research. Understanding prevailing market rates is is fairly easy if you're willing to put the work into calling people, Where do we talking go? to them. Where go to other go to other photographers. Go to ASMP. Go to Wonderful Machine. Reach out to experienced commercial photographers. And I would actually recommend reach out to commercial experienced photographers who aren't in your area. If you have a fear that you're going to get bad advice, someone who's not competing with you directly has much less of a reason to lie or mislead you. Hmm. And if nothing else, we want to see young photographers do well and charge a good amount of money because it supports the net positive ecosystem of the photography industry. The more people charge, the more people are able to continue charging that amount. Mm -hmm. Amen. Um, yeah. And then the other factor is that people ignore is our clients talk to each other. If you charge the same price for four images for one client and then their friend they meet at the bar says, oh, yeah, I hired Andy, too. And he gave me eight images for the same price. You've created a dissonance of value with your clients who are going to look at you very differently. Yes. Now. And I 100 I percent yeah. agree with that. And that's specifically why I feel like I price out my projects like that the way that I do so that they are it's totally consistent other than mm -hmm. my usage fee which I make up on the spot <laughs> yeah so <laughs> you know, I mean I'm that's, happy that's one the one thing where I feel like I where where that's going to come back and bite me is on that you know well but, I think that you need to do this is a bit of an exercise and there's a bit of self-introspection that needs to be done but I think it it pays to go through the exercise of sitting down and creating rules for yourself creating a process if nothing else to say, this is how I develop my prices. And then you put that pricing model to the test. No one really knows how to price a product or a service. You do it through trial and error and you do it through testing the market. And so if you consistently, like you say you get 50 quotes and you've landed two of them and lost 48, your pricing is either too high or you're not presenting value that's commensurate with the pricing that you're offering. Mm. If you're getting 
50 out of 50, you're not charging enough, most likely. You want to be somewhere in the middle to say there are clients who can afford me and recognize my value, and there are clients whose price range I'm out of simply because what I bring and the production value I bring is out of their grasp. Mm -hmm. Um, And you can, again, if you have those shifting rules based in logic to say, oh, this is a local client, I can justifiably charge them less Mm -hmm. than this client for this reason, as long as you keep that consistent you can develop a sliding scale very easily by market testing stuff. Um, I will say, don't be slavish to the idea that you have to land every job you get. Um, Not every job is perfect for every photographer. uh, And there are clients out there who will put up red flags. And there are clients out there who are not looking for Andy Buscemi. They're just looking for a photographer. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's generally not going to lead to a great working experience and a great relationship going forward. Uh, I would say be willing to take risks and test a pricing model, be consistent about how you set it up, and um, be willing to put the time in and be told no uh, in order to test those theories to develop a pricing model that works for you. Uh, But I would say the biggest thing is don't be afraid to ask for help. Luke, you mentioned uh, PhotoQuote. Um, that's a program that I used or I still have it. I have like a desktop version. I think it's on all online now. Um, and I've used that as just like a baseline, like just give me a, some kind of ballpark on, on what a, a, a license is worth for a given job. Do you find that photo quote is, is still good for that? Is that a good resource for people? I think photo quote is a great starting point. I think it's a better starting point than Getty um, or looking at comparable stock license pricing because that's a shifting uh, target and that's a different business model. I mean, stock imagery, especially Getty, is based on a long tail model where they want to sell as many iterations of an image as they can for as cheap as they can because there's no further cost of production on an image for them. So the more sales they generate, the higher the profit. Um and that's why they're also moving away from rights managed because royalty free allows them to have more iterations of sales on a single asset of intellectual property. Um, photo quote, you have to take some of the prices with a grain of salt, though. I do find that those prices are based around major metro areas, Chicago, New York, L.A. So, for instance, if you're in Buffalo, St. Louis, Pittsburgh, um, you might need to create some rules for yourself to say, OK, I need to make a modification of the photo quote price consistently that fits my market scope. Um, and fits the tension of that market. How far can I stretch that rubber band before it breaks? Mm. So actually what I'm getting out of this is look at your photo quote price per the image Mm. and then look at Getty and then land somewhere in the middle middle that you can justify (laughs) to yourself and then be consistent uh, with that. How's that for a starting point? point? Yeah. And then the other thing with commercial stuff, too, that I think is uh, something that a lot of emerging photographers who are entering the commercial world make an assumption about that's wrong is that when you're in a triple bid situation with a commercial client, and for those of you who have never been in a triple bid, a lot of bigger companies and agencies um, will get estimates from three photographers at least to have comparable quotes to see where the value is and see who can present on a project. And some agencies will kind of stack that deck if they want a specific photographer. They might have a triple bid from two photographers who they're not really that interested in or they know are going to bid in a certain price range. But it's important to understand that the lowest bid isn't what gets the job. It's the best demonstration of value. I've been involved in numerous um, triple bids and triple quotes where I've been either the middle or the highest and gotten the job. Mm-hmm. Um for numerous reasons, perhaps the person who bid lowest was trying to compete on price and they bid so low that the agency then questioned whether or not they could 
had the professional knowledge to handle the job because the price was so out of whack with prevailing pricing norms. Um, I've also seen people go way, way overboard with pricing or they just provided a price. Um, you know, they made the assumption that the bottom line value is what was going to get them the job and they didn't put any effort into explaining to the client what the benefits they brought were, how they were going to approach the job, yeah. how they were going to take a client's need and turn that into a concrete vision. And so that idea of creating a pitch or selling the value of a job and value of an approach is something that's really overlooked by a lot of emerging photographers. Yeah, like the company wants to know that the job is going to be done well and it's going to be done by somebody that's going to provide them with an experience that is going to go well, that they're going to, that's enjoyable to work with, that's a likable photographer, right? And and very often I could see, you know, as if if I was a, you know, the marketing director, whoever's in charge of hiring the photographer, like you want to hire the person that that um, that brings all that and that you're, that you're confident isn't going to make, you know, screw up the job and, you know, and just going to get the job done well to yeah. the point that you can use those images for what you need to use them for. Absolutely. So, and then there's also the mindset that uh, you're going to get the job because you're a great photographer or you're a technically sound photographer, I should say. And I think that's also untrue a lot of the time. I think uh, these days technical proficiency is great, but it is has to be coupled with an understanding of the needs of the client and more to the point, the needs of their audience and the um, wants of their audience. How do you resonate with the values of what you're creating? You can create a very technically perfect image that might be completely wrong for that audience. Yeah. Cool. Well, um, this has been good. This has been really good. Good, good uh, discussion. Um, any other, anything else we want to bring up on that before we, kind of close out because I think we're we're approaching an hour and 20 here which is usually about our cutoff where we yeah. start to lose people but uh anything else on that I think that was that was a good good discussion yeah I was just gonna say that um this this feeds in well to one of the discussions on the uh Facebook group this week someone posted about a florist who starts at seven thousand dollars and does these incredible displays mm -hmm. and they said you know do you think your price as a photographer is high enough to land a wedding where they're spending seven thousand dollars on flowers and uh, i think this is kind of that same idea you yeah. know if you price yourself too low it might be a red flag for somebody yeah it's interesting to think about the psychology behind all of that yeah. well i know we've all gone through it but i think at least um i know andy and i've had this discussion but over the course of growing our careers and the anxiety that comes with raising one's prices mm -hmm. i would say that the more I've raised my prices, the more business I've gained. And I've been able to leave behind clients that I thought were less than ideal for me. And absolutely. I don't know if that's the same for you guys in the wedding industry. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. When I look at my, my weddings, my first three years of shooting weddings, um, I had way more problems with, with those, those clients than I do now um, because people, when they hire me now, they hire me because, oh, you know, and for all of us, right? When somebody hires Luke, they're like, oh, Luke, we love you. We love your work, right? And, you know, generally speaking, and it's like when you're working with that kind of client, they they have a respect for you and they have respect for your process. They they know what to expect in terms of the work and and uh, and you're not, and expectations are aligned. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, and, your, and, your price is a great tool for establishing the type of client that you want to service. Yeah. Hundred percent. Well, um, I think that's going to uh, wrap it up. 
uh, for this episode. Luke, thank mm-hmm. you very, very much uh, for taking the time to come on. We really, really appreciate it. Um, and thank you. Uh, Luke, where can people find you and follow you on the internets? Sure. So my website, lukecopping.com, and you can find me at lukecopping on Instagram. And Lindsay Dataria, what do you got going on over there? I'm dog sitting. I was going to say, you don't have a dog. I was like, well, what um, is... Yeah, okay. Yeah, this is Sasquatch. Hey, Sasquatch. She wants to say hi. <laughs> Lindsay, where can people find you? Um, my website is dadario.com. I am dadario.com, Andy. Yes. Um, <laughs> you can find me on Instagram at Lindsay at work. That's Lindsay with an A at work. And my name is Andy Buscemi. The last name is B-U-S-C-E-M-I. If you Google me, you'll find my social media and all that good stuff that way. Uh, Thanks so much for joining us this week, everybody. We will catch you next time. See ya. Wedding photographers. Unite.